It's great to be here with you all. Um, I very much consider you all family, and it makes it all harder when I'm thinking about the kind of the numbering of our days here. But I just want you all to know how much I appreciate, how much I love all of you. And uh, we, we not only have a family here, but we have also many guests, and that's a wonderful thing too, uh, a wonderful thing. Uh, friends of the family, wonderful thing. So uh, thank you, Jason, for reading this passage. What we're going to look at here is how Jesus, here in Luke chapter 6, begins to form a community. And not just of his disciples when he was on the earth, but a community that we also share in. I want to look at three things, basically, in this passage. And uh, one is the promise of true community. Jesus is gathering his people together. Um, Also, I want to look at the components of true community. He gives them instructions. He teaches them. And then, finally, the power for true community. So we're going to be looking at all three of those things, um, starting with the promise of true community. Because Jesus is drawing his people together. He chooses 12 that are going to be apostles, leaders among his disciples. He comes then down to uh, down the mountainside and uh, gathers a bunch of people to him, a bunch of disciples, and not just people from the Jews, but also Gentiles. Uh, Notice that uh, there are people that come from the coastal regions around Tyre and Sidon. So this is a multicultural group that he has uh, gathered here. And Jesus is showing his power to them. He's healing people with impure spirits. He is casting out uh, demons, which I think is the same thing. And he is healing people. And we're going to see how as God, uh, as Jesus teaches these disciples that are following him, uh, we're going to see that as they ultimately uh, restore their relationship with God, that that also restores their relationship with one another. <clears throat> but let's focus on this real quick, that Jesus chooses 12 disciples and he comes off the mountain to teach them. It's really a lot of ways parallel to what uh, happened with Moses, right? God chooses 12 tribes and then Moses comes off the mountain with the law, with the instructions from God. But I want to focus on this um, aspect of it too, that the exodus, the deliverance that God brought his people came before they were given the law. And that's the same with us. The law is not how we are saved. Um, He doesn't give them the law in order to rescue them from slavery, but ultimately he rescues them from slavery and then gives them the law. So you might say, well, what then was the teaching or the law for if it didn't bring them salvation? And I think now that he has delivered his people, he's set them up as 12 tribes. He is now teaching them how to become a true human community, how to love one another, how to interact with each other. And if you look at the laws in the, Old, in the Old Testament, so many of them are about that one thing. How do people interact with each other? How should they be with each other? And I think really that you have kind of a parallel with that with Jesus here. It is Jesus comes off the mountain, he chooses 12, and then he teaches his people. He gives them law. He gives them instructions. And this is significant because if you look in the world, human community just unravels everywhere, right? Individuals are at war with individuals, families at war with families, nations at war with nations. 
Um, and it's ultimately because when our relationship with God unravels, uh, so do all of our other relationships. When a relationship with God is restored, though, it also restores our relationships with humans. So God is creating a community that shows the world, ultimately, that restoring the relationship with God is how we restore our relationship with one another. And then all of the unraveling is woven back together into a fabric, a beautiful thing. So this, uh, which what Jesus gives them here is very similar, if not maybe perhaps the same sermon as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. It's not just merely a manual of individual ethical practices, right? It's rather uh, principles for how to form a true human community among God's people. Because a thread by itself is fragile, right? You pull hard enough, it, can ju- it will just break. But you take thousands of threads, um, not just parallel, but interwoven with each other, and it becomes strong and often beautiful as well. When you enter into a relationship with God, he will weave us into a human community that is deeper and more beautiful than we can imagine. And you think about how important community is uh, for us. Um, I'll tell you, when I discover some new song that I really like, I really can't fully appreciate it until like, I share it with my wife. right? And then uh, I see her joy in seeing this new song, and I can really appreciate it. One other example about that is years and years ago before television, people always watch shows in community. You go to a show, right? And you sit with people. Um, That's why I think for so long, uh, all the TV shows had laugh tracks, right? Because it feels like you're watching with other people, right? Because watching TV by yourself is not really a a communal thing. Only recently has that gone away, the laugh track, but uh, we still text each other about the game or we still uh, interact on social media about the show, right? Because we can't get away from this idea of community, right? Um, and there's nothing more sad to read about, for example, uh, biographies of people who um, have reached heights of success and power and influence, but often that's gained at the expense of relationships with people. And there's nothing sadder than to read uh, how at the end of their life they're desperately grasping for relationships, trying to reconnect with people they've alienated at the rise to power. Because they realize at the very end, that's what counts, is that's what makes our lives meaningful. It's not the plaques, it's not the awards, it's not the money or the acclaim, it's relationships. And most of them have unraveled at the end of their lives and they're reaching out to try to restore that. But ultimately, like I said before, the only way we can truly have that restored community with God's, with people, God's people, is through a relationship with God. We need community. We want it. Um, it's one of the deepest needs of our heart. And yet, um, we live in a world that doesn't seem to be able to produce it. If you work in a, a job somewhere, you know that people are always getting offended, always get, getting slighted, uh, getting upset, falling at, people are falling out with each other all the time. It's like there's something in the water or in the air, right? There's this force in the world that makes communities seem impossible. So maybe sometimes we ask ourselves, well, is there really hope? This is a deep need that I have, but is there really hope for us to have true community? But Jesus shows up and he says that there is, right? There's power that's coming from him. 
uh, power that is beyond human ability, right? Jesus can cast out demons. He can heal people. He can bring about change within us. So Jesus ultimately is our only hope for true community. And he teaches us. The next section here, I believe, kind of lays out in the sermon that Jesus gives the components of true community. What does true community look like? What are the values that ultimately we have to adopt in order to have this community? So we're going to look at two things. One, uh, the values of the people inside the community, as well as your relationships with people outside. So the verse 20 through 26 is going to be the values of the people inside, and verse 27 to 34 is your relationship with people outside. So we're first going to look at, he lays out a a list of blessings in 20 to 22. Uh, I'll read it again. It says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name, your name as evil because of the Son of Man. So I want to focus real quick on this, uh, the, the, the phrase there, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus is bringing about a kingdom, okay? And these are the values of his kingdom. But what is a kingdom? I mean, I think it's many things, but one of the things is, it, is that it's an administration. If you think about, like, uh, if, you, if you're part of a department, um, I was once part of a department, the Spanish department, and I was the one member of that department. Uh, but uh, if you're the head of a, or if you're part of a department and there's a, becomes a new head, right, uh, they have new values, new ideas, right? And you start to see things suddenly start to get done differently, right? Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. But a new head, a new administration means new values they operate on. Um, I'll give you another example. Is, uh, I had, there was a, between my last year teaching Spanish and this year, there was a change of principles. And I've been talking with some of my coworkers, uh, met with one of my coworkers. And he's telling me the, the, the values of this new principle are very different. Uh, she's much more strict than the previous principle. And that's changed a lot of things, right? So Jesus ultimately is saying, let me tell you what the values are of my kingdom, of my administration. If you're going to be part of this, this is how things work. And so these are things that we value. These are things that are blessed in, that, in this kingdom. But they might not be the things you expected, right? Blessed are the poor the hungry, the weeping, when people hate you. And you can kind of break these down into four different values. Weakness, sacrifice, grief, and exclusion. That sounds challenging. It sounds hard. But what Jesus is doing here is he's turning, complete, reversing completely the values of the world. Look at the next set, the woes, those things that uh, are kind of the anti-values, the things that we or we don't want that. And actually, they're directly opposite of the ones he just said. The rich, the well-fed, those who are laughing. Let me, let me talk about uh, some of these real quick. Rich, by the way, wealth and poverty ultimately are matters of power. And so you might uh, think of the rich as uh, the value of power, valuing power. As well as well-fed, people who have all they need, they have all their needs satisfied, they are 
and they have comfort. And you might think of this uh, laughing also, like laughing, like is that, that's a bad thing? <laughs> I thought laughing was good, you know? But I don't think the idea here is people who are having fun, but people who uh, have won, that kind of idea. Like they're gloating, okay? They, uh, so they, they've, they've, they've beat you or they've had success in some way, and so now they're laughing, right? That kind of, the idea of gloating, because that um, is a woe. And so success, we might call that one. Uh, or when everyone speaks well of you, recognition, right? Um, acclaim. And Jesus is saying, if you enter into my administration, you will leave the kingdom of this world and enter into my kingdom. And I don't value power and comfort and success and recognition like the world does. And I do value things like weakness, sacrifice, grief, and exclusion. Who wants to join? <laughs> uh, I read something that someone said that I thought was really helpful with this. Because is it, are we supposed to be like seeking weakness, seeking grief in our life? Are we supposed to like reject being well-fed? You know, what, what, what is this idea? And it, uh, it's Michael Wilcock, uh, a commentator who said this. He said, in the life of God's people, it will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. Again, it says, we'll prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. So he's not saying not to seek the second set of values there, nor to completely reject the, the, second, the first set, that is, but rather to prize when you, when you find yourself weak and giving up things and weeping, to prize what you have. And also to, whenever you come upon any kind of power or comfort or success or recognition, to suspect those things. Those ultimately are things that the world values. And so when we enter into a relationship, ultimately changing, reversing our values completely, we have really this, um, in our inner being, this radical freedom. This radical freedom that Jesus gives us. Uh, to not be controlled by the things the world is controlled by. And once you have that freedom, it will change all of your social relationships. It will not be based on who can be the best, uh, who can find uh, the most success or recognition over other people. Uh, it gives you a remarkable freedom that changes your relationship with people. Other people who have that same freedom. You might think of an example of a person losing their job. Right? If you are uh, the person who lives by this second set of values, then you'll be devastated because you, have, uh, you no longer have any significance because you based all of your life's meaning on your job. You'll have no security anymore for your family and yourself because your security was based on the amount of money you made, right? your success. Whereas a person who lives by the first set of values they will weep. It's not saying that they won't uh, have sadness about this. Not immune to sadness. Uh, ultimately, people in Jesus' kingdom do weep now, it says. Uh, and not will be blessed for weeping now, but are blessed for weeping now. That actually people who come upon weakness and weeping are blessed because of that, because of the grief. 
and through it. So it gives us, Jesus gives us a blessedness. Ultimately, that's immune to circumstances. That even when we weep, even when we lose things, even when we experience loss, we ultimately still have blessing in Jesus' kingdom. It's, Im- it's impervious to circumstances. And even increased in some ways by weeping. So in Jesus' kingdom, we're not looking down at people. We're looking essentially over at people. Your relationships with others are transformed because you have a radical new freedom and a new set of values that you adopt by being part of Jesus' kingdom, his new administration. I want to look at your relationships with people outside. This is verses 27 to 35. So not only does uh, adopting Jesus' administration, being part of his kingdom, his values, transform our relationships with people who are part of the kingdom, but also... Uh, we have a unique relationship with people on the, who are outside of his kingdom. Because over the centuries, there have been people who have said they don't care about the world, they don't care about recognition or success or uh, acclaim, and they withdraw from society, right? And the, in their society, their closed-off, uh, cloistered society, they have love and togetherness, and they experience lots of good things. But how you treat people who don't share your beliefs ultimately will make Jesus' kingdom radically different than any other kingdom that has been on the earth. This is where Jesus' people are different than those cloistered, withdrawn communities. Because Jesus ultimately, I think, in the, uh, in the second section of 27 through 35, gives us two main instructions. One, that we, we don't withdraw from society, but rather people who mistreat us, we pray for them. We pray for them. Verse 28 says that. And this would be the, the inner work that we first have to do, right? First, we have to pray for this person that's mistreating us and do that inner work inside us. Um, when you encounter people when you encounter people that do not only disagree with you, But in this case, as Jesus says, actually are out to hurt you. Jesus wants us to engage in the inner discipline where we drain all ill will for that person. And instead of thinking of ourselves as superior to that person, we train ourselves to see that person as just as much in need as us and to bring ourselves into a position where we want their flourishing, ultimately, rather than their pain, um, no matter what they have done to us. Uh, there's a quote that I really love um, that says this, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and exclude myself from the community of sinners. But ultimately when we pray for others, uh, something changes within us about our attitude toward that person. And we ask God's blessing upon them. We want them to flourish. So there's also then, once we've done the inner work, the outer work. Verse 35 teaches us to do good for our enemies. Everyone does good for people who does good to them, right? Or is kind to people who are kind to them. We're actually in a Bible study recently, and a woman was talking about how uh, she's a kind person. She's a good person, she was saying, but not toward her uh, building manager. Uh, That person was just nasty, and so she was going to be nasty back, right? But she still thought of herself as a kind person. But what makes Jesus' community radically different, radically different, 
is that they do good for people that are nasty, for people that they don't like. For we first, though, I think, have to do that inner work where we want, we desire their flourishing. And then, ultimately, we do good for them. This is the outer work. When we drain all sense of superiority, all sense of ill will toward that person, and we love that person. We choose to love them, we choose to do good for them, even though they are nasty toward us. This is what makes Jesus' kingdom radically different. These are his values, right? Even if you get stepped on, even if you experience grief, weakness, because of interacting this way with other people, that's part of Jesus' kingdom, that's part of his values. And it is blessed, Jesus says. We're going to look at this last, these last two verses where I think Jesus gives us a key. Because this sounds hard, right? How is it that I'm going to embrace things like weakness and grief and um, loss and sacrifice and come to really appreciate those things as values, as my new values for life? How am I going to do that? But I think Jesus gives us a, a key here in the last two verses that I think is powerful. Stage one would be to remember who we are. Remember where we came from. To remember, as Jesus says, that we are sinners. But he actually uses a stronger word here. Notice what Jesus is doing here. He, um, he uses the word sinners in this la- verse 32 to 36 in a way that he doesn't typically use them. Usually he shows, he talks about sinners uh, like he eats with sinners, you know, and he talks about them as people who need a physician. They're, they're the lost sheep. They... They need a shepherd, things like that. But here he says, even sinners do that. Like, you don't want to be like those sinners. Jesus doesn't typically talk about them that way. But notice what he says there in verse 35. Love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. So the fact that Jesus will reward us, we will become children of God, is an evidence that God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, right? So I have to first realize I am ungrateful and wicked, and uh, what I have received from God is mercy, is grace, not something that I deserve. So realizing, ultimately, that I don't come from any better place, I'm not any better than those who are on the outside, and I want to bring them in. I want their flourishing, and I want them ultimately, I I think the best thing for you is to become part of God's people, become part of this community of God's people where you restore your relationship with God, and then that radically restores all your relationships with others. Yet the second stage, I think, is what what he says in that same verse, an incredible truth that We could be wicked and ungrateful people and yet be a beloved child, right? That we could be restored, forgiven. Uh, We could be cleansed from our sins and ultimately become a child of God. That's an amazing thing. Nowhere else in society do you ever see that, right? Where uh, someone is so nasty, so horrible, and yet people just receive them with open arms. But God does that. That's God's love. And I think that's the key is we have to ultimately see that us adopting God's values is starting to become like him. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. We're starting to become like God because these are God's values, not, one, not ones he just imposes upon us, but ones that he himself lives. This is really very similar to something he says uh, later in 
Chapter 11, if you would turn there just for, <coughs> just for a second. Verse 11. Chapter 11, sorry. In verse 13, Jesus says, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You notice the same two things appear there. You are evil, he says, but how much more will your father, right? Your children. He's your father, your father in heaven. So that the fact that we were his enemies and yet while we were still his enemies, Jesus came and died for us. That is an incredible truth. And if we really um, embrace that, we, we, we come under his administration. We say, Jesus, I, wanna, I want that attitude as well. I want to I love people like that. Then it will completely transform not only our relationships with one another, who have all been transformed in that way, but also w- with other people outside. And they will see what God has done among his people if we're truly living that way, and then they will be drawn to him, to Jesus. So Jesus has saved us by reversing all of the values of the world. And he himself gave himself up to weakness, to sacrifice, to grief. And exclusion for us. And when that truly sinks in, it will transform the way that we are with each other and with people in the world. Before we conclude, let's pray together. Our holy and righteous Father, we are humbled before you, Lord, knowing that uh, we have sinned against you, Lord. We have been your enemies. And Lord, we are amazed at how you have humbled yourself, sacrificed yourself, uh, so that we might be restored to you. And we pray, Lord, that as you restore us, that we would fully embrace all of your values, that ultimately, Lord, we would be with one another as you desire us to be, not trying to gain success or recognition among each other, not valuing those things anymore, but uh, embracing sacrifice, weakness, grief, exclusion, um, and growing in you every day, Lord, to love as you have loved us. Because, Lord, you taught us that first. And now we desire to live that way. We pray, Lord, that uh, your transformed community would ultimately draw in those in the world as we live towards them differently. We pray for the, the strength and the conscientiousness every day to live toward others in this way. Lord, that you ultimately might be glorified by the way we treat um, others. We praise you, Father. We thank you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.